It's my birthday today. You're a whole lot more excited about it than I am. I've had too many. I'm 64. I was uh, today, I was reflecting on this, you know, and I heard myself saying to this community and and am as committed to it as ever that uh, we are in with you for the long haul. It's just that if I were 30, that would mean something different. So the long haul, we don't know quite what that is. <laughs> it, anyway, praise the Lord. <laughs> we are delighted to be here and we have much to discern and much work to do in the next few years. Amen. Together with the church around the world, we're celebrating this time referred to as Epiphany. Epiphany is derived from a Greek word, which means manifestation or to appear or to make known. Epiphanies happen when we see something that we did not previously see. The baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel today uh, revealed the one who was simply known as the carpenter to the masses as the son of God, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you've ever been watching a movie or reading a great novel and there's a number of storylines that are woven through the whole deal and you're a little bit confused about exactly what's going on, but you know, if you hang in there, that there'll be a point where you go, oh, aha, that's what's going on. That, my friend, is an epiphany. In the baptism of Jesus, we experience an epiphany. It's we see what we did not see. We see who Jesus is. Every person in this room who's a person of faith, at some point in your life, you had an epiphany about you and about God. And you discovered that's what's going on. That's who Jesus is. Epiphany is the space where God manifests to us. Somehow he appears to us. In a theological sense, we understand that epiphany requires not our action, but the action of God. We need God to give us insight and understanding about God's self in order for faith to emerge. In other words, we need God to believe in God. <laughs> Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. You don't make this up. It's a gift from God, not by works. No one can boast of it, for we are God's result. We are God's workmanship. We are here because of God. Faith is not just a human choice. It demands the action of God. As a young man, I, I thought I had to own creating faith in others. I thought that too as a young parent. I, I, I try to get all my arguments all lined up and I look for the opportunity to pounce, I mean minister to people. But honestly, we are not responsible for the faith of others. We can't be. We can't produce faith in our friends, our family, our kids. We do have a role to play, but we have to do our role and look with a view toward God, toward the hills where our help comes from, not ourselves. Romans 10 nods to this. Paul writes, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how can they 
How can they call on the one whom they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without somebody preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Consequently, Paul writes, faith comes. Faith comes from hearing the message. And the faith, the message is heard through the word of Christ. What it's simply saying is, yes, we have a role. We're to give voice to the story. But when we give voice to the story, we don't make faith come. God makes faith come. Faith is a gift from God. That means we're not called to coerce. That means we're not called to convince. We're simply to tell people about what little we know about God and about Jesus and how he has captured us. I love the story of Paul's conversion. His name was Saul. It's later changed to Paul. And he used to be a person that persecuted the church. And we read his story of conversion in Acts 9. The text begins, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, interesting Christianity is called the way, not just the belief, whether man or woman, that he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light, epiphany, seeing. A light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And to his surprise, the voice says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. He said, Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he saw nothing and they led him by the hand to Damascus. Somehow this Saul, who is called later Paul, was mugged by God. I think that Every conversion, every one of us who have faith have been mugged by God in some way. And our continued faith in this story, continuing openness to God is the continuing of God's muggings. We are gripped, we are illuminated, and we are changed by God. In Paul's ministry to others outside of faith, he was simply committed to telling the mugging story. In Acts 26, he iterates to one of the kings he's in front of. He says, on one of those journeys, I was going to Damascus, he's telling the king, with authority and commission of the chief priest. And about noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw this light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground. And I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I ask, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up on your, and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you and appointed you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen, what you have seen and will see. It's all about what God shows us. It's all about epiphanies of me. I will rescue you, he continues, giving us more information and backstory than Acts 9 gave us. I am sending you to them to open their eyes, more epiphany, 
and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Oh, then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, to the epiphany, to the moment when God made God's self known. I think this is what evangelism is. I don't think we're supposed to go around coercing people, trying to tell them everything they're supposed to. But I think we just, we don't need to force. We don't need to, to own a person's response. I think we're just supposed to tell people how God has messed with us and just leave it at that. I mean, leave it in their hands with a trust that God will make faith come. If possible, no violent communication needed. Once we communicate our story, that I mean, that doesn't guarantee that it will be accepted. I mean, we read in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul talks about it. He says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Some people just think it's ridiculous, silly. How does that work? Doesn't make any sense, right? And then he says in 1 Corinthians 1, 23, but we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling bar for some people to the Jews and foolishness to other people, the Gentiles, very philosophical people, but to those whom God has called, but to those whom God has called, but to those whom God has called, this same message, both Jews and Greeks, the called. Christ, this message is Christ, about Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Some people think that it's foolishness. Some people think it's a stumbling block. They're the uncalled. But if somebody is called, the same message is not heard as foolishness. The same message is not heard as a stumbling block. It is heard as the very power of God and the very wisdom of God. So a person has to be in a place where he or she is being called in order for the message about muggings to seem credible. So the big question is, what makes a person called? Calvin, his take on it was God predestined people's response. That some people are called and some people are not going to be called and will never be called. But Calvin was a newbie in the historical church. And his claim that some people were created to be damned and others were created to be saved, it was suggested by a few others in the church's history, but it was not the prevailing view by most of the church fathers, and it doesn't sit well with most of us. It doesn't sit well with your bishop. So if you're a Calvinist, I think you're wrong. (laughs) Now, but then if you're right, God predestined me to think that you are wrong. (laughs) Since God predestines everything. So I'm just obeying God whether or not you're right or wrong. I think the way a person goes from being the uncalled to the called is when the church dares to pray for the world and call people's names before God and faces before God to God. Paul said in Romans 10, brothers, my heart's desire, the thing that fills my sails and prayer to God is that the Israelites may be saved. Now, why would Paul have a desire and a prayer to God that is powerless? 
if it mattered not. He had this desire and this prayer because I think he knew it did matter. I think prayer opens the door for God to specifically call people. That's why I love, you know, some people have never been prayed for. That's why I love in airports or walking down the street or wherever I am. I do these little arrow prayers. I say, God, God, speak to that person's life. What are you doing in that person? Do something in that person's life. Why? Because I actually believe that on some level, prayers for people shake something in them, opens them up to see what they do not see, to catch what they have not caught, and somehow allows pathways for God to reach into their lives. I just think and believe it. I think that's why we're supposed to intercede for all people and pray for people. I think it matters. I told you last week the story about Sister Schlinsog. I told you that she was coming to our church, the first church I pastored for years. And as she got very elderly, she pulled me aside one day and she said, Pastor Ed, I just have to tell you this story. And she said, when I was, when you were just a little boy, my father was a doctor. And she said, he was my doctor. And he called me into his office, you know, as part of my examining and was talking to me. And as he was talking to me, I looked over on the desk and I saw you and your brother. And she said, I felt like God said to me, you must pray for these boys. And somehow I remember thinking when I responded to the gospel, nobody really preached to me about how I could have a personal encounter with Christ. All that happened was this guy who was a friend of mine said, I'm thinking about giving my life to Christ. Think about giving my heart to Jesus, I think is how he said it. And it just got me like a chicken on a dune bug. And I said, what is that? What is that? And I went home that night and surrendered my life to God and started this journey, active journey of faith in my mind. And I always thought, why was I so open? I mean, maybe I was just more open than some people. But I have come to believe the reason I was so open was because somebody had listened to God in a call to pray for me. What if that's true? Story after story is iterated in the historical record of the church. How cold men, cold women, who want nothing to do with God, are prayed for by the saints over and over. And somewhere along the way, that person is mugged by God. If you share your mugging story with someone and they're closed, just make note to self. Pray for them and watch for God. See, don't try to convert them yourself with impassioned pleas like that of a great defense attorney. Remember, it takes a direct working for God in us for us to see and understand God. We need epiphany. I think what we just need to do is live in a way that creates the question. Why are you so different? What's going on? Why aren't you freaked out? Why aren't you a gossip? Why aren't you just always bummed out and always speaking negatively about everything? There's something different about you. At least that's what God wants. First Peter 3, it says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Not just in your blathering, but in your hearts. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for why you live, for the hope that you have. But even when you do give them, always do it with gentleness and respect. Why? This is not your deal. All you're doing is giving voice to the message that God will bring faith to them. 
And then pray once you're living in a right way. Pray for boldness to simply share your story. Because sometimes when people ask you, why are you like you are? If you're not prepared, you just go, oh, I don't know. <laughs> you have to have boldness to say, you know what? I, God has mugged me. God is in my life. And I know that may not make sense, but I, that's what's different in me. Don't try to convince. And don't even try to be perfectly clear. I mean, truth is, there's a lot about God that remains mysterious even after we cross the threshold of faith. I mean, remember this text, Romans 11? Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. You can't get a big enough piece of paper to trace God. There is no way you can trace God's doings and workings in your life or anyone else's life. The problem is most moderns, that's us, are very uncomfortable with mystery. I mean, we like to come across like we know everything about faith and about God and about the Bible. And so if we talk about our connection with God, we, make it try, to, we try to make it sound so clear, you know. Yes, I have a connection with God. Uh, but the truth is it's still so jammed with mystery. We don't really know what we're doing and we've never really seen him. <laughs> when I was an eight-year-old boy, I had a definite connection with my dad. But I'll be honest with you, he still freaked me out a little. Didn't quite get him. I, I, as a child, I was both comfortable and awed by my dad. I, I think we need to be very careful about how casual we are about talking about our relationship with God or about what truth, the truth that we perceive. We can easily act like we have this deep, clear understanding when in reality, we just have bits and pieces. Gail and I have had four kids, eight grandkids, and uh, we just... And we're not, we would love for our to have 16 grandkids. Let me just prophesy. Um, but when all of them were infants, our own kids and our grandkids, they didn't understand much about their parents or their grandparents. I mean, they began to recognize pretty quickly who mom was and who dad was and other close family were, but we were still pretty much foreigners while they were infants. I mean, we had this connection as they got to two or three months, right? But at infancy, connection carries more mystery than clarity for that child. I mean, our current toddler, Rowan, who's Father Paul's and my daughter Lissa's little boy, is 15 months old or so. I mean, I, it took Rowan and I a little just to get to know each other. And now I, if his parents are holding him and I come up, kind of leans over, chooses me. It's as it should be. <laughs> he knows our car seat is better than his parents' car seat. He knows I keep treats in my office for him, that when I give it to them, I am not going to tell his mother. His parents want to train him. I have no interest in that. I just give him whatever he wants. He seems to know me. That He seems to know that, that somehow... There are no rules. <laughs> My fail-safe is that when he goes monster on me, I give him back to his parental units. <laughs> but though we have this connection, he, he has no idea at 15 months. He has no idea who I am, really, what I do, where I've been. He has no clue. I remain a mystery to him. But we get along famously. See, I think this captures our relationship with God. I'm not sure we ever get past infancy this side of eternity, maybe toddlers. My point is, we don't get God. Stop telling people that you do. You are lying. 
Second century, St. Ignatius wrote this old, in his old age, he wrote this during his old age, quote, I am just beginning to be his disciple, end quote. See, in faith, we're babes at best, and I think we need to acknowledge the paleness of our understanding of faith and of God. We see through a glass dimly or darkly, Paul wrote. I used to talk in a way to other people like I knew God with absolute clarity. I mean, I used to string Bible verse after Bible verse together with an air of absolute knowledge of God. I am your God expert. I think we should all carry a deep admission of our unknowing. Yet most of us, especially preachers, talk about God as though God sits with us face to face every single day and we know exactly what the Trinity is, exactly what salvation is, exactly what everything is. I still get nervous, to be honest with you. As the older I get, it continues. I still get nervous about how confident I sound when I listen to myself. I have a bachelor's degree in religion and philosophy. I have a master's degree in early Christian history. I'm finishing my PhD dissertation in theology. I went to Bible school. Beside that, you would think I know what I'm talking about, but I don't. I stand here, you're listening to me. I take a prominent role as a teacher in sanctuary and little do you know, I really do not know what I'm talking about. It's like you're listening to a babbling toddler. I know some stuff, don't get me wrong, bits and pieces. But I like to reference my, and you've heard me about my dog, Frank. I've only had two dogs. Both of them are dead. I'm pretty sure both of them are in hell. I know most of your dogs go to heaven. I don't really believe that. But <laughs> Frank, you know, I would see Frank. He's a really smart dog. And, uh, you know, he would look at me and, and, you know, he would get a few things. You know, like, go bye-bye. Want to go potty? Treat. So, you know, little things he'd get. Even he would even get commands. Roll over. And he'd do it. It's a dog. But somehow, my human communicated to that dog, and that dog got it. But just because he got some things does not mean Frank knew who Ed Gunger was. I don't think he knew my name. He didn't know I was a pastor. He didn't know, I was, he didn't know my studies. He hadn't read any of my books. I don't think any of my family's read it. <laughs> So, so but, but think of this. He's created, I'm created. And between the two createds is infinity of knowing. So if there's an infinitude between Frank and moi, how big is the distance between moi and the uncreated one? We're talking about a being who dwells both in time and beyond time. What does that even mean? One who dwells in eternity. I don't even know what eternity is. One who, you know, if you try to orient yourself to eternity, and we know that eternity houses infinity, how do we talk about that? How do you talk about infinity? Where do you start? Because infinity has no start. Where's the middle ground? Because infinity has no middle. And how do you end the conversation? Because the infinity has no end. 
Yet we American Christians <laughs> love to talk with certitude with each other and with our kids, with our neighbors about God. We claim to know the four steps to answer prayer. We share four spiritual laws that will guarantee your salvation. And we have three reasons tithing will always guarantee divine prosperity when we don't know what in the world divine prosperity even is. The truth is what we do know is a tad sketchy, probably more sketchy than tad. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 3.16, beyond all question, beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. The mystery of godliness is great. We scientifically minded moderns think we've got it figured out. Trinity, water, liquid, ice, you know, gas, right? That's the Trinity. Well, uh, 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 how smart you are. That is dumb to the thousand. Here's what we know. Sometimes prayer gets answered. Sometimes it doesn't. But we're called to pray. Sometimes God is simply present with us in trouble and moves the earth to change the trouble. And other times God is present with us in trouble and he remains silent and does nothing and doesn't tell us why. See, God's working is not necessarily logical. It's, it's teleological. That's how the philosophers would say it. Logical is A, B, C, D, E, F, G. It's logical, right? If, then, if, then, if, then. Teleological means A, Z, P, L. <laughs> so it's like kind of circular, teleological. And you end up somewhere, but you have no idea how you ended up there. Most of life is like that. We don't understand, you know, like your health. You're supposed to eat well. You're supposed to work out and you end up living longer, right? I mean, that's what they tell us. And yet we all know people that do that and died young. We all know people that didn't do that and lived till 100. See, what is that about? You know, it's, it's, not, it's not direct steps. This is very circuitous. God is sort of, moved, he's getting us places, but we don't know exactly how we get there. Our role is to not try to figure it out, but just trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. If God were bound to logic, it would reduce God to a vending machine. Do this, put the money in the machine, then that, push the button of the thing you want, and then God will do that, which is what comes out of the bottom of the machine. This is not how it works. The story of the Bible, nor the story of the saints throughout history suggests anything like that. In some ways, trusting God is like boarding a plane Sometimes you fly in a beautiful, clear day. No bumps, perfect visibility. I fly a lot. I'm a diamond on Delta, which means I fly too much. You have smiling, some days smiling flight attendants. Then there's those other flights where it's not so good, but you're on board, baby. A few years ago, I was, I was descending into a thunderstorm in St. Louis and it looked ominous and it seemed like the lightning was intentionally trying to hit us. This huge jet was bouncing around like a Mexican jumping beam, right? Just bouncing. And the attendants looked nervous. Ed Gunger was nervous. It, it was not fun. 
I remember uh, sitting there feeling completely helpless, you know, pushing myself to trust the airplane's engineers and the pilots and God. And I remember praying, Lord, I am not in control. I'm trusting that you and those pilots are. And I remember taking deep breaths and praying in tongues under my breath. Yes, I am a closet tongue talker. Faith is a lot like that. We're just on board. Some days are amazing, awesome. We feel God clear days, singing angelic attendance, answered prayer. But then there are those bumpy, unknowable days that carry dark clouds, flashings of lightning, and we just need to tighten our seatbelts and hope we'll make it and simply cry, Lord, I believe, but can you help me with this part of me that doesn't believe, that's freaking out? One last thing. We're still dealing with a God who loves to make God's self known. God wants to push into the unknowing and it wants us to push into the unknowing and he wants us to discover things, to have epiphanies, aha moments. This beautiful text, Jeremiah 29, if you seek me and find me, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. He says, I will be found by you, declares the Lord to hide with my kids and my grandkids. I always set the game up so they could find me and just make it as difficult as age appropriate. God does it with you. He hides in your life. If you will find him, if you will search for him, he guarantees you will find him. He wants us to know him, to see him more clearly. And there's a lamenting in God's heart when we don't pursue knowing him. There's a lamenting, there's a groaning in his heart. In Isaiah, he groans about the apathy of Israel that wouldn't seek him. They just didn't believe he was there because if he's there, wouldn't it be big? If he's there, wouldn't there be amazing things happening? If he's there, wouldn't, wouldn't we just be forced to know it? But God isn't like that. He's a God who loves to hide himself. And faith is about believing enough that we would dare to seek him. If we never seek him, it's just we don't believe he's there really for us anyway. But Isaiah says, God cries, the ox knows his master, the donkey, his own manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. He says, I'm your master. You don't even know me. I've created this manger for you. You don't pay attention to it. It's like you don't care. We may not be able to know that much, but we can still know and grow in our knowledge of him. We just need to keep seeking, stay humble, be open, try not to box God in and everything we think we know. We can know God more. It's just that God cannot be fully known. We just commit to seeking for God even when we cannot fully understand what we discover. We seek him because he is in our midst. We say in the opening prayer of the Eucharist prayer, not this morning, but in, like in the word and table every time, is the Lord is here. He's in our midst. The Book of Common Prayer in the daily office says this, quote, through your incarnation and your birth, you established your presence among us. Teach us to recognize the many forms of your presence in the church and in one another. Amen.